It's time once again for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's Wednesday, August 19th, 2009. No major injuries today. And the foot uh, is definitely better than it was yesterday. Thank you again for the prayers. Unfortunately, it's kept me from getting out and exercising. It's a little tough to go on a walk when you can't walk. Maybe I'll try something different after dinner. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I'm your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There's no shortage of opinions and ideas about God, none whatsoever. What there is a shortage of are opinions and ideas about God that actually jive with and comport with God's Word. So don't sit there and tell me that you think you have an idea about God and you just came up with something that you concocted or cobbled together in your basement last night or on your word processor the other day and expect me to sit there and go, oh, wow, that's deep about God. Because if it doesn't jive with Scripture, it's just not true. You're just making stuff up. So um, I have to warn you ahead of time, this program has the ability, uh, we get the emails on a regular basis, has this uncanny ability to cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. What would cause that? Well, a, a number of things. Uh, we can list them off. Uh, your pastor is chronically twisting God's word and isn't really preaching what it really says. Instead, he's uh, put together some kind of sissy Oprah-fied uh, a sermon topic on you know how to relieve stress or do better in relationships or things like that and what he what he does is he uses all kinds of bizarre translations and paraphrases of the bible to string together like you know like pearls on a string uh, different bible verses that support his uh, oprahfied phil uh, dr phil uh, sermon topic of the day that's one way to do it. That that when you listen to this program, if that's what your pastor's doing, it won't take long for you to sit there and go, "Wait a second, he's not actually teaching what God's word says." The other one would be uh, your pastor isn't actually preaching the gospel to you. Uh, yeah, that's you, and you're sitting. Well, wait a second. I uh, I heard the gospel when I made a decision for Jesus. Why would I need to hear it again? Um, because that kind of preaching, gospel-less preaching, uh, where you as a Christian only hear the law but never hear of Christ's mercy and forgiveness, that's the kind of preaching that turns people into Pharisees or makes them want to just run screaming out of the church and eventually dump the faith altogether. And so uh, we point out uh, pharisaical legalistic preaching that uh, mysteriously uh, Christ is missing from it. And uh, the reason why is because you, uh, listener, regardless of how long you've been a Christian, you need to hear the gospel. And the reason why is because daily you struggle with your sin. The Christian walk is one where we are daily in a battle with sin, death, the devil, our own flesh, 
And uh, many, many a time you give in and you do things that you know are sinful. They're not accidents. They're not oh, uh, oopsies or, you know, it, it's not like you've just dropped milk on the floor. No, these are premeditated and evil, wet, wretched sins that you've engaged in. And uh, as a result of it, that sin wars against your faith. And unless you constantly, daily, weekly, always hear of Christ's unfailing love for you and his death for you and your sins on the cross, um, then it's likely that you can despair of your faith. And so if that's what your pastor is doing, he's as far as not giving you the gospel, listening to this program is going to uh, highlight that fact in bold, bright letters and, uh, again, could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. So I, I, I give you that as a fair warning. And, uh, you know, most people think, well, well, uh, is there anything good that comes about from your program? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Good discernment, good biblical thinking, good critical thinking, and constantly hearing about uh, what Christ has done for you. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and his vicarious death on the cross for our sins. I can't think of anything more important to proclaim and bring to you day after day as I come to the microphone. All right, today's program, we got a little bit of email, probably one of the my most favorite nasty grams. I <laughs> I got to read this one to you. Um, I think this is probably either in the top two or the most favorite nasty grams that I've received. I also got a good email from uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. And uh, he's uh, uh, giving his two cents regarding uh, uh, Hislop's two Babylons. Somebody, uh, apparently a few people actually emailed me links to uh, full-blown, you know, PDF, uh, HTML copies of that book. And I got to tell you, um, you know, already, um, there's some major scholastic issues with that uh, book and I'll uh, read Pastor Charmley's email. Uh, the Lutherans, the ELCA Lutherans, and, uh, you gotta be careful. You don't lump them all in the same category. There are a bunch of confessional, uh, Lutherans trapped in the ELCA, for lack of a better way of putting it. And uh, they are fighting valiantly against the liberals in the ELCA. And uh, yesterday the debate opened up on uh, on the sexuality statement that's being uh, bandied about there at the uh, ELCA uh, convention. And uh, we'll be reporting on that. And then here's a shocking news headline. Obama's not making abortions rare as promised. <laughs> I'll read the story to you when we get to that portion of the program. And then there's a, a very well-written critique, if you would, a blistering um, op-ed piece from the New York Times entitled, Believers Invest in the Gospel of Getting Rich. And uh, and we're going to uh, read that article to you as well as give you uh, Dr. Al Mohler's response to it because I think he did a fine job of responding to it. We're going to finish up the book of Acts today, Acts chapter 28. And then we have an interesting uh, sermon review today. I'm going to be reviewing a sermon by Pastor Rick Malm, who is the uh, pastor of Summit Church in Corpus Christi, Texas. And uh, he's uh, recently preached a sermon called uh, Uriah the Honorable Hittite. Now, i got to admit, it's uh, in, in my entire Christian experience, I don't think I've ever heard somebody preach about Uriah the Honorable Hittite. And uh, the reason why we're going to be discussing that particular sermon really comes down to... Uh, it's another example of a mixing of law and gospel. So to, as part of today's sermon review, I'm going to be spending uh, some extensive time 
showing you from the scriptures what the correct understanding of law and gospel is. And then, uh, and then we're going to li- listen to this uh, sermon on Uriah the Honorable Hittite. But more importantly, uh, really, Uriah is kind of the side story. The real story is between David and Bathsheba. And uh, how the gospel plays into that is critical stuff. And so, uh, you know, we're going to, you're going to be hearing the gospel kind of like full full force today uh, because we're going to be spending some time at looking at how the gospel plays into the story of the sin, uh, the adultery of uh, David and Bathsheba. So got lots of ground to cover. Make yourself comfortable. Uh, if um, you would like to enjoy an adult beverage while listening to today's edition of Fighting for the uh, Faith, we do not have a problem with that whatsoever. Again, the biblical mandate when it comes to uh, alcohol is uh, is the prohibition against drunkenness, not a prohibition against drinking. Remember, Jesus turned uh, uh, nine water jars into the, the good stuff. So Jesus is not a teetotaler. He's all about drinking in moderation, not to be enslaved to things. And with that, we're going to dive right into the program. Okay, here's a... <laughs> Got an email from James. I do not know where James is from, um, but James apparently uh, has taken issue over the fact that I have uh, pointed out uh, Joel Osteen's false teaching and called it what it is, uh, heresy. That's what it is. And so the subject uh, line to James' email reads, You appointed a judge over Osteen? Question mark. Well, uh, God's word is the thing that judges. I'm just just pointing out that uh, Joel Osteen doesn't preach what's in accord with God's word. But <clears throat> let me read the email again. <clears throat> this definitely falls into uh, my favorite nasty ground that I've ever received. Uh, by the dominion and authority given to me through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, and through the Holy Spirit, as decreed in the Holy Scriptures, with this dominion I bind you on heaven and on earth. I decree this day that words of truth you speak or write be blessings to you and others. However, the lies you speak or publish, the misguided judgments you render against fellow imperfect servants of our Lord and Savior in your self-righteous, arrogant pride and self blinded haughty spirit these now are a curse to you until the hour of your repentance when and in an act of true humility faith and rebirth in the holy spirit you remove all content from this project which the spirit of the lord has shown you to be sinful and or untrue in the context of your sight or, or on your youtube oh you pharisee until you repent the lord rebuke you in jesus name amen <laughs> Do you think I um, said something that upset uh, James there? Well, I'm not going to repent, James, because I've taken Joel Osteen's preaching and the statements that he's made, and I've compared it to the clear teachings of the Word of God. I stand by my conclusions. Joel Osteen is a heretical prosperity preacher who is sending people to hell and preaching a false gospel. I will not repent of pointing that out and warning people against his false doctrine and against this very, very dangerous man who is sending people to hell. So that being the case, until, James, you can show me from Scripture that Joel Osteen actually preaches the true Christian gospel, um, I rebuke your rebuking of me. Therefore, uh, they to cancel out, and it doesn't stick. (sighs) 
man. All right. Uh, email number two comes from our distinguished colleague from across the pond, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. Man, that's so great that uh, he, uh, he gets four names rather than uh, the standard three. He says, Dear Chris, I would urge caution in using Hislop's two Babylons as he significantly over-eggs the pudding. Now, there, that is a statement. He over-eggs the pudding. Pastor Charmley, I'm going to have to be uh, remembering that one and using it. So in the future, if you hear me talking about people over-egging the pudding, uh, know this. I've stolen it from Pastor Charmley. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, Hislop uh, significantly over-eggs the pudding in an attempt to equate the Roman Catholic religion with the ancient Babylonian religion. First published in the mid-19th century, it suffers from the faulty historiography of the period. No historians or students of ancient religion now believe the basis for his information. See the online edition, which I have read, uh, at least portions of it. And the book is uh, sadly full of false etymology and stretched conclusions, not to mention the genetic fallacy. The same methods used by Hislop against Rome have since been turned against the whole of Christianity by liberals and skeptics, including Rob Bell. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, mere coincidence is turned into connection and conjecture into solid fact. The whole uh, the whole partakes of the pan-Babylonian theory, now widely regarded as an oversimplification. Hislop also distorts the mythology, claiming that Osiris and Horus are identified when they are always clearly distinguished in Egyptian uh, mythology. Sadly, there are still a lot of Christians who assume that Hislop's book is accurate and his method sound. Neither are the case. Thank you, Pastor Charmley. That is very well said. And, uh, at, I mean, just in perusing the book, I could I spotted immediately offhand that the, the conclusions that it was drawing were not even warranted by the facts that it was bringing to the table. And a lot of those facts just don't even sound like they remotely fit with what we understand now regarding the ancient world. So, well put. And uh, so, unfortunately, we cannot... In fact, Fighting for the Faith officially now uh, warns against the the book, uh, The Two Babylons by Hislop. It's just not good scholarship. Okay. Moving along, it's time that uh, we dive into our news. From the Christian Post, headline reads, Lutherans open debate on sexuality statement. Yep, up there in Minneapolis... ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, I think they're still the largest Lutheran church body in the United States. And I'm telling you, if they end up passing the sexuality statement and uh, come down in favor of uh, homosexuality, I think that uh, that the ELCA is heading for a split. Um, we read, though, uh, who wrote this? I've got to make sure I give the proper attribution. This was written by Lillian Kwan, Christian Post reporter. A debate on a proposed social statement on human sexuality began Tuesday at the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America's Churchwide Assembly. Opponents of the statement argued that adopting it would constitute abandonment of Scripture. Now, one of the things I like about the Christian Post is that they cover religious news from an angle that actually religious people, uh, Christians, you know, can sit there and go, yeah, I get that. And they're right. Um, Quote, this is God's law and we cannot change it, said Roy Gibbs of the Northwestern Ohio Synod, according to the ELCA News Service. Quote, Every one of us here today knows what is right and what is wrong. Our Father has written on our hearts and on our minds. 
Now, that's a fantastic statement uh, made by Roy Gibbs, and he's absolutely correct. God's law could not be clearer when it comes to homosexuality, and those who say that it's vague are trying to sell you something and, and basically are changing the gospel. However, i got to interject here. It's not enough just to say that God's law has makes it clear that homosexuality is a sin. We must also proclaim the forgiveness of that sin in Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. So it's it, the, God's law is designed to condemn all of us, and it does, rightfully. Me, you, everybody, heterosexual, homosexual, uh, slave or free, it doesn't matter what your skin color is, how tall you are, how short you are, how fat you are, how thin you are, how healthy you are, how unhealthy you are. God's law, there's something in it for all of us that points out the fact that we are wretched and sinful creatures in need of a great God and Savior to save us, to redeem us, to forgive us and declare us righteous, not because of a righteousness of our own, but because of the righteousness that is in Christ. So um, I just point that out because it gave me, you know, the the story itself kind of gave me the opportunity. Anyway, this week at the August 17th through 23 meeting at the Minneapolis Convention Center, voting members are considering the Human Sexuality Gift and Trust Statement which was drafted by a task force and released in February. The document addresses social structures, trust in relationships, cohabitation, sexual exploitation, abuse, and, drumroll please, homosexuality, the latter of which has drawn the most attention and controversy. The report acknowledges that there is neither a consensus nor an emerging one in the uh, denomination on homosexuality, and also states that the denomination cannot responsibly consider any changes to its policies unless it's able and willing in some way to recognize lifelong monogamous same-gender relationships. At the same time, it recommends that the ELCA commit itself to finding ways to recognize such relationships. Really, how can the ELCA, how can any Christian church body commit itself to finding a way to recognize and bless a same-sex monogamous relationship? It, the, the Bible outright forbids it. The document was formally introduced on Tuesday to the 1,045 voting members at the Biennial Assembly. Task Force Chair the Reverend Peter Strawman said he doesn't expect all ELCA members to agree with the social statement in its entirety and recognized how heavily the matter was weighed on the, has weighed on the denomination. Quote, we can no longer assume that people in our society, or even many in the church for that matter, hold a shared understanding of Christianity's core beliefs, let alone those of Lutheran ethics, he says, as reported by the denomination's news service. Let me read that sentence again and just tell me if I'm missing the point here. Or I, I think this is completely cockeyed. Uh, let me, <laughs> quote, we can no longer assume that people in our society, yeah, that makes sense, or even many in the church for that matter, wait a second, <laughs> we can't assume that people in the church hold a shared understanding of Christianity's core beliefs? Uh, don't you think that's a problem uh, if you've got a whole bunch of people in your church who don't hold and share Christianity's core beliefs? Don't you think that's an indictment against what's going on in your churches? Maybe you guys need to say, you know, what we really need to do is shelve this whole sexuality statement for about 20 years and recommit ourselves to actually preaching God's word correctly and uh, helping people within our churches uh, understand and share Christianity's core beliefs. 
<sighs> anyway, as important as issues over human sexuality might be, the first order of business for the ELCA is its missional challenge. We cannot afford to be inarticulate about what is most important in regard to our faith. He added, what would that be now that uh, what's what's most important in regard to your faith? I, I'm curious uh, how you would answer that question. Um, the social statement uh, emphasizes two principles, trust and um, bound conscience. Okay. Uh, trust and bound conscience, which were, again, highlighted by task force members at the assembly. Um, the Reverend Timothy Wengert, a member of the task force, explained to voting members that conscious-bound belief does not mean being bound to a particular interpretation of Scripture. Oh, I, I you know, like uh, the interpretation that basically says God's Word is true and that we can understand it using simple things like, you know, language, verbs, nouns, you know, stuff like that, historical, grammatical interpretation. So, you know, but what does this do? It turns basically turns the Bible into a wax nose. Ah, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, we don't mean you know people don't need to be bound to a, a belief that the Bible's the word of God and is to be understood. Where it pr- speaks literally, it's to be understood literally. Where it speaks poetically, it's to be understood poetically. Notice that the people who rail against the quote literalists, um, they don't recognize the fact that uh, that. Even literalists understand that when the Psalms talk about uh, God wanting to gather, um, you know, his people like a hen gathers chick, you know, its chicks doesn't mean that God is a, fe- a big female chicken in the sky. Just a point. I had to bring it up. Anyway, let's see here. So instead, he said it means that the very people who hold different opposing viewpoints on a particular moral issue based on their understanding of Scripture, tradition, and reason must recognize the bound conscience of other of their neighbor who disagrees with them and then work in such a way as to not cause that person to reject the faith and fellowship in word and sacrament. No, no, I'm not going to sit there and say, okay, listen, all right, you over there, you claim to be a Christian. Yeah, I get that. And yet you, your conscience is bound to the belief that the Bible isn't the word of God. That doesn't make any sense. You know, oh, so I'm going to, I'm going to say I'm in Christian fellowship with you, despite the fact that you deny that the Bible's the word of God. Jesus actually was a historical person, that he actually rose from the grave, that he actually died for our sins. And you've turned basically the Bible into nothing more than a bunch of moral Aesop's fables. And uh, that then there's no historical backing to it, but your conscience is bound to that. I have to respect that. no. I don't have to respect that. What I need to do is basically show this person from Scripture that they're wrong and that they're in sin and committing idolatry and call them to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. I'm not interested in getting along with somebody who claims they have a bound conscience that tells them that God's word isn't God's word. That person is an idolater who needs to repent and receive Christ's forgiveness for their sin of idolatry. This is the whole world has gone crazy here. Anyway, while opponents of the document maintain that it is consistent with the biblical command to care for one's neighbor and build trusting relationships, others argue Scripture does not support homosexual behavior. That's an understatement. Um, let's see. Thou shalt not lie with a man as with a woman. It's an abomination. Yeah, I would say that counts as uh, that Scripture doesn't support homosexual behavior. Again, understatement. 
The Reverend Paul Spring of State College, Pennsylvania, chair of the Conservative Lutheran Corps, Coalition for Reform, doesn't believe the churchwide assembly should be voting on the matter at all. Quote, the Constitution of the ELCA says that the Bible is the source and norm of the church's faith and life. A church meeting does not have the authority to overturn what the Bible clearly teaches about marriage and about homosexual behavior, Spring contends. Woohoo! This guy gets it right on. You, <laughs> the sexuality proposals show a tremendous arrogance. He's right. This is awesome. ELCA leaders think that we can do whatever we want in our teaching about homosexuality, regardless of what the Bible teaches and what Christians around the world and throughout time have consistently taught. "Quote: A Christian church does not vote on matters that are integral to faith of the church. The debate," Spring says, "is not about sex. Rather, it's about the source of authority in the ELCA." And he is is right. That is oh, spot on. Lutheran Corps is gathering support to defeat proposed changes in the denomination's teaching about sexuality, and our prayers are with them. Oh, that's just good stuff right there. All right. Uh, number two here. This is also a Christian Post story written by Jennifer Riley. <laughs> this kind of this kind of falls into the duh category. Uh, Obama not making abortions rare as promised. Do you think? <laughs> Do you think Obama was really committed to making abortions rare? If you, if you really, if, if you, for those of you who may have voted for Obama, did you really honestly think that a socialist like Obama, a liberal like Obama, was really, quote, committed to making abortions rare as promised. That is nothing but a completely stupid uh, election platitude. And, I mean, that's like, I'm sorry, that would be like um, uh, Democrats saying that they're committed to lowering taxes. <laughs> yeah, right. <sighs> or or even better, uh, to, to eliminating the national debt. Anyway, just saying, here we go. So less than three months after a Focus on the Family director gave unexpected praise to the Obama administration, the ministry president released an opinion piece that criticized the president for not delivering on his promise to make abortions rare. Uh, Jim Daly, president and CEO of Focus on the Family, recalled President Obama saying in many occasions that he wanted to work with pro-life groups to make abor abortions rare, but his Walk, unfortunately, has not matched his talk, Daly wrote in an opinion piece posted in the, New in the U.S. News & World Report. In May, Daly recalled Obama's uh, statement in a commencement address at the University of Notre Dame. Quote, so let's work together to reduce the number of women seeking abortions by reducing unintended pregnancies and making adoption more available and providing care and support for women who carry their child to term. But if Obama is serious about making abortions rare, Daly argued, the president should not have repealed the Mexico City policy. That was the first thing he did, by the way, which bans federal funding to international groups that promote or perform abortions. He also should not have appointed a radical abortion advocate and former Kansas Governor Kathleen Sebelius as Secretary of Health and Human Services. And he should not be forcing Americans to pay for abortion as part of the health care reform package, Daly added. The focus on the family president's uh, strong criticism against President Obama, though mild compared to his predecessor, Dr. James Dobson, comes months after one of the ministry's staff complimented the Obama administration for really listening. <sighs> Man. Yeah, I. Sorry, I've been around the block too many times. I've 
worked with politicians. I know all about how campaign promises work. I mean, there. Oh man, anybody naive enough to believe campaign promises has just got another thing coming. Obama had no intention of ever making abortions rare. That's just empty, empty words and empty platitudes. Well, we're up on our first break, and uh, when we come back, we got this uh, interesting. Uh, op-ed piece from the New York Times, uh, Believers Invest in the Gospel of Getting Rich by Laura Goodstein. It's a very interesting story, and uh, we have Al Mohler's response to it. we got Acts 28, and then hour number two today on Fighting for the Faith will be our sermon review. First, I've ever heard a sermon on Uriah the Honorable Hittite, and so we got lots coming up, so stay tuned. Do not uh, turn well. What do you do nowadays when you listen on a computer? Do not press that button. It used to be turn that dial, but don't whatever you don't. Do, well, yeah, you you got it. Anyway, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's program, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. Hello, I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? Tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey, I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Yeah, well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. 
Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package, sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well I, I'd better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered, uh, gospel, Jesus... Uh, uh, well, sorry, Squire. I had a look around in the back of the shop, and, uh, well, we're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio... Very well, I'll give them a try. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the Emergent Church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the Emergent Heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. All right, we're back. Hang on, I gotta do the white man overbite. Little air guitar here. Oh yeah, man. It's almost as good as Guitar Hero. Well, maybe not. (laughs) Alright, need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means your financial support is vital for us in order to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as others. In fact, by uh, sharing with the resources God has given you through the work that you do uh, and making those resources available to us, we continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to other people. In fact, think of it as a partnership. Now, if you'd like to partner with us and uh, help to continue uh, the outreach of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so a couple of ways. You can, first of all, Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. Or if you would like to do it the traditional way, you can actually make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 
508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, this is an interesting piece uh, from the New York Times, and Al Mohler has uh, responded to it, so we're going to spend a little bit of time on this. And this has to do with the outrageousness of the prosperity gospel. The headline from the New York Times reads, Believers invest in the gospel of getting rich. I would add to that a false gospel, by the way. That is not the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. Fort Worth, Texas, on stage before thousands of believers weighed down by debt and economic insecurity, Kenneth and Gloria Copeland and their all-star lineup of prosperity gospel preachers delighted the crowd with anecdotes about the luxurious lives they had attained by following the word of God. I'm going to vomit. Ugh, man. Private airplanes and boats, a motorcycle sent by an anonymous supporter, vacations in Hawaii and cruises in Alaska, designer handbags, a ring of emeralds and diamonds. Oh, Boy, I, I'm doing. I, you know, I've got to just quit being a gospel preacher. I got to become a prosperity gospel preacher. I mean, <sighs> quote: God knows where the money is, and He knows how to get the money to you. Preached to Mrs. Copeland, dressed in a crisp pants ensemble like those worn by CEOs. Even in the economic downturn, preachers in the prosperity gospel movement are drawing sizable, adoring audiences. Their message that if you have sufficient faith in God and the Bible and donate generously, God will multiply your offerings a hundredfold is reassuring to many in hard times. Yeah, this is, by by the way, this is the biblical version of a Ponzi scheme. It's not biblical, I should say the um, the religious equivalent of a Ponzi scheme. The Bible does not teach that if you support prosperity pimps, that's a good way to describe them, that God will multiply your offering to them. That's just rank heresy. And notice also here, if you have enough faith, they turn faith into a work even on top of it. This is the kind of stuff that will not only um, make you poorer, but it'll also send you to hell. <clears throat> we continue. The preachers barely acknowledged the recession, though they did say that it was no excuse to curtail giving. Fear will make you stingy, Miss, Mr. Copeland said. <laughs> but the offering bucket came up emptier than in some previous years, said those who have attended before. Many in this flock do not trust banks, the news media, or Washington, where the Senate Finance Committee is investigating whether the Copelands and other prosperity evangelists use donations to enrich themselves and abuse their tax-exempt status. You think? Anyway, but they trust the Copelands, uh, but they trust the Copelands, the movement's current patriarch and matriarch, who seem to embody prosperity with their robust health and abundance of children and grandchildren who have followed them into the ministry. Oh, great. More of them. <clears throat> Just what we need. Quote, if God did it for them, he will do it for us, said Edwidge uh, Naudi, who traveled with her husband and three children from Canada for the Southwest Believers Convention this month, where the Copelands and three of their friends took turns preaching for five days, ten hours a day, at the Fourth Fort Worth Convention Center. Could you imagine spending five days at a convention and ten hours a day of hearing prosperity preachers? Oh, my goodness. 
The crowd was more than nine thousand. Uh, more of more than nine thousand was multiracial from forty-eight states and twenty-seven country countries. There was no fee to attend. <laughs> yeah, because they were going to fleece you inside. There were bikers in leather vests, pastors, blue-collar workers, professionals, and plenty of families with children. A large contingent came in wheelchairs, hoping for miraculous healings. Oh, you feel that's just awful. Uh, the audience sat with Bibles open, flipping to passages cited by the preachers, taking notes on pads and laptop computers. The folks who are coming aren't poor, said Jonathan L. Walton, a professor of religion at the University of California, Riverside, who has written about the movement and was there doing research. They reside in that nebulous category between the working and the middle class. Sitting in section 316, eight rows up, making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on a Bible at lunchtime, was a family who could explain the enduring loyalty uh, the prosperity preachers inspire. Uh, Stephen uh, Belier, a long-distance trucker from Mount Vernon, Missouri, said he and his wife Millie came to the convention praying that this would be the overcoming year. Oh, man. They are $102,000 in debt, and the bank has cut off their credit line, said Mrs. Belier. Uh, they said the Copelands rescued them from financial failure 23 years ago when they bought their first truck at 22% interest and had to rebuild the engine twice in a year. Around that time, Mrs. Belier first saw Mr. Copeland on television and began sending him 50 cents a week. Others who bought trucks from the same dealer in Joplin that year went under. The Belier said that they did not. We, ha we would have failed if the Copelands hadn't been praying for us every day. Uh, said Mrs. Belier. The Beliers are now among uh, 386,000 people worldwide whom the Copelands call their partners, most of whom send regular contributions and merit special prayers from the Copelands. A call center at the ministry, 481 uh, employee headquarters in Newark, Texas, takes in 60,000 prayer requests a month. A publicist said the Copeland's broadcast reaches 134 countries and the ministry's income is about $100 million annually, which is about half of what Benny Hinn takes in. Benny Hinn takes in about $200 million. The Beliers were at the convention a few years ago when a supporter made a pitch to people to join an elite CX team to raise money to buy the ministry a Citation 10 airplane. Uh, Mr. Copeland is an airplane aficionado who gets his start who got his start in ministry as a pilot for Oral Roberts. At that moment, Mrs. Belier said she heard the voice of the Holy Spirit telling her, you were born to support this man. Yikes. She gave $2,000 for the plane and recently sent 1800 for the team's latest project, buying high-definition television equipment to upgrade the ministry's international broadcast. Mrs. Belier said some friends and relatives would say the preacher just wanted their money. She explained that the Copelands did not need the, the money for themselves. It's for their ministry. And besides, even trashy people like Hugh Hefner have private airplanes. <sighs> anyway, I think you get the idea of what this, you know... Oh, man. Uh, this It's just so sad. These people, uh, they're, they're deceived by a false, false gospel that basically tells them if they do the right things and believe enough, then, then God will have to open up the storehouses of heaven and bless their seed offerings. But no such doctrine is in scriptures whatsoever. As a result of it, these people are $102,000 in debt, and they're barely solvent. And what are they doing? They're giving money to the Copelands in the hope, in the hope that that'll prove to God 
that they have enough faith and that God will then turn around and meet their needs? Notice the cosmic quid pro quo here. By the way, quid pro quo is Latin for this for that. Okay, if I do this, then God will do that. If I do this, then God owes me this. That's not the way the gospel works. And there's no such thing as a, quote, prosperity gospel. There is, it's, it's, there's a prosperity heresy, but there is no prosperity gospel. Wow, this is sad. Anyway, um, let's see, we continue. Uh, let's see, I remember Copeland had, a, had to once fly halfway around the world to talk to one person, she said, because we're partners with Kenneth Copeland. For every soul that gets saved, we get credit for that in heaven. <gasps> No, 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 no. Oh, that's horrible. That That's just awful. We're partners with Kenneth Copeland. For every soul that gets saved, we get credit for that in heaven. Wow. All law, no gospel. But while a band uh, primed the crown, Professor Walton called the prosperity preachers spiritual pickpockets. Quote, to dismiss and ignore the harsh realities of this economic crisis, he said, is beyond irresponsible to the point of reprehensible. The Copelands refused an interview request, but one of their daughters, Kelly Copeland Swisher, and her husband, Steve Swisher, who both work in the ministry, spoke for them. Mrs. Swisher said that the ministry gave away a minimum of 10% of what comes in to other charities. Her father's current favorite, she said, is a Roman Catholic orphanage in Mexico. The ministry has resisted providing the Senate investigation with all the documents requested, as she said, because the Copelands did not want to publicly reveal the names of the partners. The investigation, which could result in new laws, is continuing. A committee spokeswoman uh, said among those being investigated is Creflo Dollar, one of the ministers at the Copelands Convention. Mr. Swisher said that even in the economic downturn, the ministry's income uh, going into the convention was up 3% over last year. As if they had adjusted the message for the economy, Mrs. Swisher, Mrs. Swisher patted the worn Bible in her lap and said the message they preach is the word of God. The word doesn't change. No, it's, a, it's actually not. At the convention, the preachers, who also included Jesse Duplantis and Jerry Savelli, uh, sprinkled their sermons with put-downs of the government and overhaul of the health care uh, public schools, the news media, and other churches, which of uh, many of which condemn prosperity preaching because it's a heresy. But mostly the preachers were uh, working mightily to remind the crowd that they are God's elect while everybody else is having a famine, said Mr. Seville, a Texas evangelist. His covenant people will be having the best of, the, of their times. Anytime a, uh, anytime a worried thought out, a thought about money pops up in your mind, said Mr. Savelli. The next time you do, next thing you do is sow. Drop money like seeds in uh, good ground, like the preacher's ministry. Stop worrying, start sowing, he added, his voice rising. That's God's stimulus package for you. Ugh. At the hundred, at, at that, hundreds of streamed down the aisles to the stage, laying envelopes, cash, and coins on the carpeted steps. By the way, there's a picture of that. At this uh, story at at the New York Times website, just absolutely, oh, my heart is just breaking. Uh, unbelievable. So the reason why they're giving money is because they're partnering with the Copelands, and every time somebody is, quote, saved, they get credit for that in heaven. That's not taught anywhere. Here's Al Mohler's response to it. it, it um, his, the name of his piece is entitled, It Promises Far Too Little, The False Gospel of Prosperity Theology. 
Uh, quote, God knows where the money is and he knows how to get it to you. That was the message of Gloria Copeland as she was speaking at the Southwest Be- uh, Believers Convention recently held in Fort Worth, Texas. The event drew the attention of the New York Times and uh, reporter uh, Lori Goodstein contributed a compelling report about the meeting and its message. The South- Southwest Believers Convention drew a crowd of more than 9,000 to hear an all-star lineup of preachers to uh, deliver the message of the prosperity gospel. One by one, the preachers and the speakers enticed the gathered thousands by offering them the assurance of that God wants them rich, even fabulously rich. As Goodstein reports, the preachers were not shy about drawing attention to the luxurious lives they lead. Uh, private airplanes and boats, a motorcycle sent by an anonymous supporter, vacations in Hawaii, cruises in Alaska, designer handbags, a ring of emeralds and diamonds. According to the preachers of the prosperity gospel, these are merely examples of the riches and rewards that come to those who have sufficient faith and invest sufficient funds in the ministry of the prosperity preachers. New York Times took note of the fact that the current recession and financial distress did not keep the crowd from attending the Southwest Believers Believers. Sorry, a little slip there. Uh, Believers Convention. The event is uh, part of the ministry of Kenneth Copeland and Gloria Copeland, described by Laura Goodstein as the current patriarch and matriarch of the prosperity gospel. The paper summarized their messages a message as the promise that if an individual has sufficient faith in God and donates generously, God will reward that generosity by multiplying the offering a hundredfold. Those who might curtail their donations during the recession were warned of the spiritual consequences. Fear will make you stingy, said Kenneth Copeland. Oh, man, prosperity theology is not new, and it comes to the attention of the secular media again and again. In 2006, Time magazine published a major cover story on prosperity theology, documenting its development and tracing its influence. As David Van Bema and Jeff Chu explained, prosperity theology is a peculiarly American theology but turbocharged. This turbocharged theology offers a false hope, presents a failed message, and is a a false gospel. The prosperity gospel usually comes packaged in terms of the word faith or faith promise theology developed early in the 20th century by preachers such as E.W. Kenyon. Kenyon drew from the tradition of the new thought associated with movements such as Christian science. In one sense, he attempted to bring elements drawn from positive thinking movements into his message, mixing new thought with Christianity. Kenyon promoted his new type of Christianity and found a ready following, especially among those who were experiencing financial distress or poverty. Kenyon, who died in 1948, exerted a significant influence on prosperity preachers such as Kenneth Hagin, Oral Roberts, and Kenneth Copeland, who was once Oral Roberts' personal pilot. Prosperity theology is now preached by a wide assortment of televangelists and local figures who assure congregation that God promises to make them healthy and wealthy if only they will possess and demonstrate, quote, adequate faith. A significant number of these preachers have departed from Christian orthodoxy altogether, adopting, adopting Trinitarian and Christological heresies. The entire movement presents the gospel as a message that is primarily about earthly rewards, a theology that turns God into a heavenly banker who is obligated to invest his people with material riches if law talk here, if they possess adequate faith and claim these blessings for their own. Sincere believers in Christ are found among both the impoverished and the wealthy, but the vast multitude of Christian believers throughout the ages have experienced nothing that can be described as material wealth. Their hope was 
and is established in Christ who accomplished their salvation from sin and secures their hopes for eternal life through his death and resurrection. Prosperity theology is a false gospel. Its message is unbiblical and its promises fail. God never assures his people of material abundance or physical health. Instead, Christians are promised the riches of Christ, the gift of eternal life, and the assurance of glory in the eternal presence of the living God. In the end, the biggest problem with, the pros- with prosperity theology is not that it promises too much, but it promises far too little. The gospel of Jesus Christ offers salvation from sin, not a platform for earthly prosperity. While we should seek to understand what drives so many into this movement, we must never for a moment fail to see its message for what it is, a false and failed gospel. Yep, absolutely. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Muller. Good, good insight. All right. We're going to, before we go to the break, we're going to go ahead and finish up the book of Acts. We've been working our way through the book of Acts, and I kind of launched in, kind of, I actually, I launched into this, uh, into this uh, study in the book of Acts for really the main reason of demonstrating from the passages itself how the Christian church grew. There's a lot of people, well-meaning people out there, who think that the way you grow the church is by uh, giving unbelievers what they want and, and basically meeting their felt needs in a relevant way, curtailing the Christian message, and um, and you know giving people you know, a seeker-driven uh, message, and then showing them how much you love them, and then you can tell them that they need to make a decision for Jesus. Nothing could be farther from the truth. In fact, we don't see none of that in the Book of Acts. Instead. How did the church grow? Through the bold proclamation that Jesus Christ was the Messiah of Israel, the promised, the prophesied promised Messiah of Israel, and that he died on a cross for the forgiveness of sins and, and calling people to repentance and trust and belief in the forgiveness of sins for their salvation. That's how the Christian church grew. And believe it or not, that's exactly how the Christian church really grows today. It doesn't grow any other way. And numerical growth in, in a particular church building does not equal growth in the kingdom of God, especially if uh, the, the numerical growth in the church is not prompted by uh, and not the, a work of the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Just want to point that out. So where we last left off, the Apostle Paul, who never experienced material wealth for whatever reason in his preaching of the gospel, instead he was stoned, he was shipwrecked. You know, he got you know, this, you know, this guy, I mean, he was thrown in prison. I mean, he was run out of towns every day. You know, he, this guy, I mean, suffered and suffered greatly for proclaiming the this good news of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And when we last left off, they, he had been 14 days in, in, on a boat in the middle of the, uh, of the Mediterranean Sea being tossed about uh, because he was on his way un, under arrest uh, to uh, go to Caesar and uh, make his case before Caesar after being arrested in Jerusalem because of a riot there. So when we last left off, the ship ran aground, and uh, and now we pick up from there. Now, it says this, uh, Acts chapter 28, verse 1, After we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta, their shipwrecked 
on Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, Well, no doubt this man is a murderer. Uh, Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Interesting. Law-based thinking there, by the way, on the part of the people of Malta. You get what you deserve. Kind of a karmic kind of thing. Uh, But he, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were all waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But when they had waited a long time, they saw no misfortune come on him. Uh, They changed their minds and said that he was a god. Not exactly a better way of looking at it. Now, in the neighborhood of that place uh, were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us uh, hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and with dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed and put his hands on him and healed him. And when he had taken, uh, when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came, and they were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So Paul here gets to preach the gospel <laughs> after being shipwrecked. He, he just takes the gospel with him everywhere he goes. So after three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as figureheads. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day at South, uh, Southwind sprang up, and the second day we came to Petuli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as, far as from the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished uh, to set me at liberty, because there, there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I, ha- I had no charge to bring against my nation." For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers, and from morning until evening... He expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, 
they will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. (laughs) What a great story. What a great book of the Bible. What an amazing way which God has chosen to build his church through the foolishness of the message that we preach, the message of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Oh, man. And so this is where Acts leaves off with Paul being able to preach and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ under chains, if you would, without hindrance. Ah, good stuff. All right, we're up on our second break, and when we come back, we'll launch into hour number two of Fighting for the Faith and our sermon review today, a little bit of a different sermon review. Never done a sermon review on a sermon that preached about Uriah the Honorable Hittite, but then again, I've never really heard a sermon preached about Uriah the Honorable Hittite. And the reason why we I, we picked this sermon really has to do with the fact that it uh, is a, a great example of a confusion of law and gospel. And so you want to stay tuned and you definitely want to hear that because I'm going to supplement uh, a lot of uh, what is taught in the sermon with the gospel itself, specifically from the story of Bathsheba, David and Bathsheba, which uh, Pastor uh, Rick Mom didn't quite know what to do with that's well, anyway so that's kind of a little bit of a preview as to what's coming up after the break so you definitely 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 don't want to miss that now if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far on fighting for the faith or in a previous edition feel free to email me uh on previous editions too it's okay there's no there's there's no shelf uh, d- date you know, for fighting for the faith. You can email me regarding anything you've heard on any past editions. To do so, uh, just email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can look me up on Facebook. My name there is Chris Rosebro. Or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Think Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Avaster, it be too late to alter course, mateys, and there be plundering pirates lurking in every cove, waiting to board. Sit closer together and keep your ruddy hands inboard. That be the best way to repel borders. And mark well me words, mateys, dead men. Tell no tales. (laughs) Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the Emergent Church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the Emergent Heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. 
Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. Number two, Fighting for the Faith, straight ahead, sermon review time. Going to have to do a little bit of groundwork on law and gospel before we dive into the sermon review proper. Kind of looking at my program notes here. question is how best to do this. All right. Um, what I'm going to go ahead and do is I'm going to go ahead and uh, kind of intro the sermon and, and get into our sermon review music because that, that's a tradition that we have here. And apparently I'm a traditionalist. So uh, there we go. That's our sermon review music to uh, frame the sermon review portion of Fighting for the Faith. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here. And uh, when there's a sermon that's a bad sermon, it, it, what we find is is that there's a lot of different ways a sermon can go bad. From scripture twisting to just silly things. Uh, and then there's a more subtle way that it can go bad. And uh, today's going to fall into that little more subtle category. And today, the pastor uh, today, in fact, the uh, sermon comes to us from Summit Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, and the pastor's name is Rick Malm. Gotta tell you, this guy is an, just, an, uh, just an upstanding guy. You know, this is somebody that you could trust with your daughters. You know, from what I've seen and, uh, and you know, I've had some correspondence with Pastor Malm. Just, just a sincerely hardworking guy who wants to live his life in a way that, that pleases God. And so, that being the case, this is a guy. This guy is not like your normal, you know, pompous, arrogant, uh, seeker-driven guy who's you know, no, he's not like that at all. I mean, no. So I, I, I say that up front because I, I want you to understand where he errs is in a completely different direction. Uh, can we kill the music? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Where he errs is in a completely different direction. And that being said, it's important that we do a little bit of uh, groundwork here. And uh, and, and you'll, you'll also notice a slightly different approach to how we handle the sermon review here. He doesn't make outrageous claims. or Well, it, outrageous claims in the sense of where he says stuff that's like just out to lunch. Instead, uh, you got to give him props because he's trying to preach on a particular passage. He's doing exegetical work, so to speak. The problem is, is that, um, you know, the reformers said this, I think it was Luther who said it, that um, if you don't correctly understand law and gospel, God's law and what its purpose is and the role of the gospel and what its purpose is, then what happens is, is the Bible remains a closed book. And ultimately, it's a book that becomes very terrifying because the only thing that you can really understand is God's law. If I do this, then I'm pleasing God and I'm making him happy and then I'm okay. But that's not Christianity. Christianity doesn't teach us that we make God, uh, we please God through the law. Instead, uh, Hebrews 11.6 makes it perfectly clear that without faith, it's impossible to please God. 
So that being the case, I got to do a little bit of groundwork here before we dive into our sermon. And then, uh, and then what I'm going to be doing during the sermon is that since he's talking about Uriah the Honorable Hittite, well, why is he doing that? The reason why he's preaching about Uriah the Honorable Hittite is because uh, when you when you confuse law and gospel, you, you really think that the reason why there's these different quote character sketches in the in the Old Testament. Is, is that there's people there whose lives we're supposed to emulate. And so the reason why Uriah the Hittite's story is there is so that we can emulate his good character. That, that you got to be careful when you do that because that's all law preaching. But uh, let, me, let me back up my words with a little bit of text so you kind of get where I'm coming from. Romans chapter 3, okay, we're going to start... At verse 9. So if you have your Bible, you definitely want to get it and follow along. I will be reading from the ESV, which I lovingly refer to as the English Sanctified Version. Um, and why? Because it's it's a very good translation. I think it's far better than the NIV, although I used the NIV for 20 years. So it was, um, well, more than that, actually. I probably used the NIV for, what, 25 <laughs> Uh, oh, oh, okay, I'm getting old. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm counting. I'm remembering when when, uh, when do I start using the NIV? Man, I was in. Okay, um, it was longer than 25 years ago. <laughs> well, so I used the NIV for uh, 25 to 27 years, and uh, recently made the switch over to the ESV because it's a better translation. I'm sorry, I'm off topic there. I just, again, it just sometimes you have one of those moments where you realize, whoa, I'm getting old. <laughs> okay, anyway, um, so he, listen, Romans, the book of Romans and the book of Galatians, both of those, uh, both of those letters in the New Testament do a fantastic job of telling us what the purpose of the law is and what the purpose of the gospel is. And where people go wrong is is that we have the law of God actually written on our hearts. It's the thing that we understand. And so when you look across all the different religions of the world, what one of the things they have in common is is that they all have this understanding of right and wrong. Okay? And this idea of kind of placating God or somehow getting right with him through actions that you do. The Christian gospel doesn't teach that that's how we are made right with God. At least not our law keeping. It's actually Jesus Christ's law keeping. And remember, Jesus Christ was perfectly sinless. And that's an important fact. And the reason why is because his sinlessness, his perfect righteousness is given to you as a gift. I'll explain that to you in a little bit. So here we go, Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Paul here is talking about the law and, and other things, and ultimately he's showing how the law applies to Jews and Gentiles all alike, and at the end of it we're all declared to be um, sinners. We read, So what then, are we Jews any better off? Well, not at all. For we all we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. That, by the way, gets rid of the whole seeker-driven concept altogether, but that's a different thing. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their, they use their tongues to deceive. Venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Um, and who does that apply to? Everyone. Remember, 
we do what we do because we are what we are. The reason why we sin is because we are sinners. We are not made sinners by sinning. Okay, that's no, the reason you sin is because you are a sinner by nature. That's what the scripture teaches. That's the whole doctrine of original sin. However, um, on the converse side of it, many people mistakenly believe uh, that you are what you are because you do what you do. As a result of it, they think that you're made righteous by doing righteous things. And the reason that falls flat on its face is because nobody keeps the law perfectly, even Christians. Therefore, there's no amount of righteous good works that you can do to make yourself righteous. Instead, we have to be declared righteous from outside of ourselves. That's why the Gospels is outside of us. So here under the law in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, it's clear then that everybody is under sin. Everybody's a sinner, whether they've heard the law or not. It doesn't matter. Everybody, plump, is sin, sinful, okay, by nature. So now are we now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable verse 20 of chapter uh, of chapter 3 of Romans says this for by works of the law no human being now one no human being will be justified or you can say a good translation of Dikaiosune uh, there, it would be no one will be declared righteous in his sight um, by observing the law. Hang, did I get the right? Um, hang on a second. Uh, Got to check my Greek here because I'm, I did that from memory. Hold on. Uno momento, por favor. Let me pull up my Greek New Testament. And I want to check the Greek on this one. By overcoming the law, declared righteous. Yeah, uh, D. Uh, there we go. Yeah, that's right. No one will be declared. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. That's what the Greek says. Um, uh, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin, no one will be declared righteous in his sight. That's God's sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law cannot save you. It was never intended to save you. And you cannot please God by doing the law. Okay, Hebrews eleven six says, "Without faith, it's impossible to please God." So it's through faith that we are made pleasing with to God, and faith is a gift from God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. In Jesus Christ. So then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? Well, well by what kind of law? By works of the, by the law of works? Well, no, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is declared righteous by faith apart from works of the law. Let me read that again. That's Romans chapter 3, verse 20, 28. It says, we hold or we maintain that one is justified by 
faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Well, is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Well, yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is the one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised also through the same faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Well, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was declared righteous by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? It says in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him or credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but instead believes in him who declares righteous or justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted or credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but it came through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered that the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust, no lack of faith made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. 
it would be count it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised uh who raised from the dead Jesus our lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification therefore since we have been declared righteous by faith we now have peace with god through our lord jesus christ through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and that we rejoice in the hope of, glo- of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance and that endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak and powerless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified or declared righteous by Christ's blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Okay, now I'm going to read another passage here. Uh, Philippians chapter 3 is also a very critical passage, especially in light of the sermon that we're going to hear. Now, we're going to hear a sermon about uh, how Uriah the Hittite had great character and how his story is there for us to emulate so that we can please God. I want you to listen carefully to what Paul uh, writes about his own righteousness in Philippians chapter 3. Now, he makes a reference to the Judaizers in Philippians chapter 3, and he writes, Look out for those dogs. Look out for those evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Those are the guys who are in the circumcision crowd. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and have put no confidence in our flesh. Though I, Paul, have reason for confidence in the flesh, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more reason. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. See, now listen to this. Paul says this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a, as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I might know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So here in Philippians chapter 3, Paul makes it clear that he considers his own righteousness as garbage, as rubbish, and doesn't want to be found having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law. Instead, he wants to be found in Christ and have a righteousness that's not his own, but is Christ's righteousness that is given to him by faith. Remember, Christ lives the law perfectly for us. 
So the Christ, Christian doctrine, the biblical New Testament, teaches that the, the purpose of the law is not to save us. Galatians says, if a law had been given that could save us, then Christ died for no reason. So what then is the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is to show us our sin. It The law convicts us of our unrighteousness, shows us that we're not keeping it. Now, the law does show us what a good work is, but understand, without faith, without trust in Christ, it is impossible to please God. You cannot please God through your righteous law-keeping. That's not the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to convict you of your sin. So therefore, when people confuse law and gospel, they confuse it when they think that the, 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 the purpose of the law is to show people the things they need to do to please God. No, no, no. You could not be more pleasing to God already if you are a Christian. And the reason why is because Christ's perfect righteousness, his sinless life, is given to you as if you're the one who lived it. God doesn't see you as the sinner. He sees you covered in the perfect robe of righteousness of Jesus Christ. Okay? Your sins are given to him. They're propitiated and atoned for. You are covered by the righteousness of Christ. You are given, Your heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. You are transformed from being a goat into a sheep. You go from being a dead tree to being a live tree to being a wild olive shoot to being grafted into Christ. I mean, the, the pictures couldn't be more profound. You go from being dead to being raised again. And so the reason why Christians do good works, again, you do what you do because you are what you are. Christians are a new creation, and they do good works because that's what is in their nature to do. And here, before Christ's return and the resurrection of the dead, we get to struggle with this oh-so-wonderful paradox of being both sinner and saint. We still struggle with our sinful nature, and we are saints in Christ, set free from sin, death, and the devil, and slavery to sin, to do good works and love God and serve our neighbor. Okay? So what happens is, is that people who confuse these things, they don't read the Bible correctly, because what happens is they go then skimming through the Bible to look for character sketches, and you can dare to be a Daniel, and or things like that. That's where they, they mess things up. But let me read to you one one more passage, and then we'll dive into the sermon proper. And keep in mind, I'm going to spend. I'm going to also read some uh, some other portions of this story that uh, Pastor Mom didn't read, so that we can see the gospel in action. Because Uriah the Hittite really kind of plays a supporting role in the story. It's not the it, the story's really not about him. He's He's in it, um, but if you're just doing a character sketch and say we need to be like Uriah the Hittite, you've you've missed the big story. <laughs> I mean, I, oh man, that I, mean, I, I kid you not. I mean, I, I'm trying to come up with a, a metaphor of un- understanding it. Uh, you know, but I mean, if you go to a if you go to a big movie and you know it's a world premiere of uh, of, of of a movie that's going to win the Academy Award, and you went home and talked about how good the popcorn was, that's that's kind of like you know, and people say, well, who cares about the popcorn? Tell me about the story. The movie was a movie like. That's what we're dealing with here. 
But I want to read one more passage of Scripture to you, and that's John chapter 6. And uh, particularly, I want to, to take, uh, I want to read to you uh, verses 25 through uh, 29. It says this, When they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you, because, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Uh, for, for on him God the Father has set a seal. So they said to him, um, well, What must we do to be doing the works of God? John chapter 6, verse 28. We have this verse. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Now listen carefully. This is a very important question. You know, if somebody comes up to Jesus, who is God in human flesh, and says, listen, what do we need to be doing to do the works of God? You would expect the next thing, out, if, if, if we were saved by the law, the next thing out of Jesus' mouth should be, love God and love your neighbor, which is law, not gospel. Instead, he says this, Jesus answered them, this is the singular work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. The work of God is to believe in the one whom he has sent. Now, all of that is preface for uh, our sermon review today. And I know I've gone a little bit long, but, you know, that's the nice thing about the program is, is that I go as long as I need to. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> anyway, so here, without any further ado, then, uh, here is uh, a sermon on uh, Uriah the Hittite. And uh, it, it, the, the full name of the sermon is People We Can Learn From, Uriah, an Honorable Hittite. And this is Pastor Rick Malm of Summit Church in Corpus Christi, Texas. Again, this guy just looks like the nicest guy you could possibly know. Here we go. Ready to go? Ready to look into the Word together? Grab your Bibles. Open to Second Samuel chapter 11. Second Samuel 11. If you're using the Bible there in your seat, it's on page 486. Um, we're going to look at the life of a guy who, um, this whole month, in fact, we're going to be looking at people that we can learn from. Last month, we looked at some principles to guide our life. Next month, we're going to look at some parables of, of Jesus that can help us. This month, however, we're going to be looking at the lives of people in the Scripture. And when we study the lives of people in the Scripture, it's not like studying the life of Abraham Lincoln or Winston Churchill or, or Martin Luther King or something like that. Because when we read their lives, we can only know, if it's an autobiography, we know what they were thinking, but we don't know all the things that were going on around them. And if you're reading a biography, you know what was happening, but you don't really know the motives of their heart. And that's what's so awesome about the Bible. God tells us that the stories in here... He particularly chose, these things happened to them, it says. These things happened to all these men and women as an example to us, as a warning to us to teach us. Okay, got to pause here. Now, what, he, what he's basically, let me tell you what he's referencing here. He's talking about the fact he says that the, in the scripture it says these things are written to be a warning to us and to, and to guide us. Let me read the passage he's referring to. That's actually an allusion to 1 Corinthians Chapter 10, I read starting at verse 1. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same, uh, from the, same spiritual, uh, the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased 
for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, but he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Okay, so again, context, context, context. What he's referring to here. He's not really exactly telling you the whole story, and this tells you something about Pastor Mom's theology. Okay, These things are written as examples to us. However, when you read 1 Corinthians 10 in context, yes, they, these stories, many of the stories in Scripture are written for examples of us, but notice what they're examples of. Examples of sinners being punished for their sin. So the, many, many times we see examples of... When, when, when those are the kinds of examples we're getting in Scripture, this is law. And the purpose of the law is to convict us of our sin and and show us our need for a Savior. That you know, That's really the purpose of the law. And so when it comes to this, these are negative examples of things we ought not to do. Okay, I'm just pointing it out because the basis of his sermon is slightly tweaked and a little off. And the reason why is because he mixes a law and gospel. He's not preaching the law lawfully, and as a result of it, this impacts his gospel. Funny enough, the cross doesn't exactly fit as a puzzle piece in his theology, but we'll get into that as the sermon develops. We continue. And so he, not only these things happened to them, but he chose what he would record in here, what he wouldn't record. The facts, the, there were a lot of things, obviously, that happened that he didn't put in here, and there are a lot of details about the stories he does have. So he carefully chose and crafted the things that he reveals to us so that they can teach us, so that they can train us, so we can learn how to please God, how to hope. Oh, man. Okay, now that's the scary statement. These things are written so that we can see these examples and learn how to please God. That's actually wrong, like very, very wrong. Okay, that's an incorrect conclusion. Those are examples and warnings to us about you know not sinning but it doesn't logically follow that by not sinning or you know whatever that we're we're pleasing god that way no without faith it's impossible to please god the important thing is is that we trust in christ we are saved by grace through faith without works of the law that's what our salvation is in we do good works because we are saved and we're admonished to do good works. When you look at the, all of the epistles that admonish us to good works, it's always in light of Christ's forgiveness. It's always in light of the gospel. One of the ways that uh, Dr. Rosenblatt and Mike Horton talk about it is, is that um, all, of the, um, all of the imperatives regarding the Christian life are first, uh, first preceded by indicatives. Okay, the indicatives basically being the proclamation of what Christ has done for us, and what Christ has done for us forms the basis for our sanctification. 
So what's happening here is Pastor Malm is mixing law and gospel, and the end result of this is unfortunately will be for a lot of people is is that they will think that they're pleasing God by their 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 works by the, by their progress and in, in in character and stuff like that the problem is is that again the law demands perfect obedience so the law is not how we are made pleasing to god it, the we are not made pleasing to god by gleaning the character traits of good people in the old testament and then applying them to ourselves no that's not what the stories are there for we continue. We avoid the mistakes they made because none of us are going to live long enough to make all the mistakes ourselves, uh, And you don't want to do that anyway. So we want to learn from the mistakes of others. So we learn from their mistakes. Plus then we see uh, how we can please God, the things they did that were right. And we can emulate and we can copy them and, and try to do things right. And thank God for the word because if we didn't have this book... Now, something I want to point out, all the major characters of the Old Testament, I mean, they are just sinners and scoundrels. Noah got drunk. You know, Adam and Eve, they were thieves. Um, You think of Moses, he was a murderer. David, an adulterer um, and a murderer. I mean, over and over and over again, what we see is, is that in the Old Testament... The Old Testament saints, you could hardly hold up their lives as uh, m- models of morality. Abraham was a liar. Uh, Samson w- you know, was a whoremonger. I mean, just the, the list goes on and on and on. So this is a, really missing the point biblically about what the purpose of the law is. We continue. We'd just be guessing. We, we would all be kind of coming up with, well, I think this is how you please God. Well, I think this is how God works. Well, I think he's this, well, I think he's this cruel, unjust God that we better cut a chicken up and offer him a sacrifice every week or he's going to cause rain to come down our house. We'd just be making it up. See, this is an incorrect view of Scripture. The purpose of Scripture is not to show you the things you have to do in order to please God. It tells us what Christ has done to please God for us. And we are declared righteous not by our law-keeping, by our character. We are declared righteous because Christ has atoned for our sins. And Christ died for all of them, not some of them. And the gospel is not to be preached just to unbelievers— in fact, primarily, it needs to be pe- preached over and over again to believers. We continue. That's what I, I kind of laugh when people go, well, I don't think God's that kind of a thing. I don't think God's that way. I go, well, base, what do you base that on? Like a conversation you had with him? I mean, what do you base this on? If you don't base it on his word, it's just my little pea brain trying to figure out this infinite God. This little piece of flesh about the size of a softball trying to figure out the infinite. And I got nothing to base that on. Okay, now he's making a valid point here. Again, basis of authority when it comes to talking about God is absolutely scripture. Good point. That being the case, I really should read Hebrews uh, eleven uh, so that we, you know, that we got the basis of the fact that uh, we're not made pleasing to God by our law keeping. We already saw that in Hebrews. I mean, Romans three, four, and five, which we read. Saw it clearly in Philippians chapter three. Let me follow this up since. Um, Hebrews 11.6 makes it very clear how we please God. We read verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith, 
we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him up. Now before he was taken up, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. See, by faith we are declared righteous. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of, the, of promise as a in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, their heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has its foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many and innumerable as the grains of the sand of the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared a, for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be. So we go over and over and over again in these passages. We read, we read this, verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do it, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith, through faith, not their obedience, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might re rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, flogging, even chains, imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, of whom the world was not worthy. Okay, All of these, though, they're through, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So, again, cannot reiterate this enough. 
When you confuse law and gospel, you don't understand that we are declared righteous by faith. The purpose of the law is not to give you tips and tricks on how to make yourself pleasing to God. When you trust in Christ and you are transformed, literally transformed from dead to alive, you do good works to please God because you can't help but do it. But you don't do good works in order to please God. You are made pleasing before God because of Christ, and because of that, you do good works. That's what happens when you confuse law and gospel. You get the two mixed up, and that's what's happening here with Pastor Mom. We continue. Thank God he gave us his word so we know how to please him. We know if you follow this road, you're going to end to destruction. You follow this road, there's going to be blessing. He's given us these guys, these men and women's lives to look at, to learn from. So we would be wise to do that since that's what they're in there for. And today, we're going to look at a guy that some of you are going to know who he is. When I mention his name, you're going to go, oh, yeah. In fact, as I'm, as I'm beginning to describe him, some of you go, I know who that is. And others of you, when I say his name, you're going to go, oh, I've never heard of that guy. And some of you, when I tell you the story, you're going to go, that's in the Bible? Man, I can't believe that story's in the Bible. Um, but, but it is. And it's in 2 Samuel 11. We're going to read just the start of the story. And then I'm going to tell you the story. But I wanted you to look it up so you know where it is. So you can read all the details yourself. But it's a story about a guy that I just love this guy. I mean, he just, I love this guy. In fact, I hope by the end of the day, you're going to love this guy too. He is just an awesome guy. But... Um, uh, you don't know much about him. And um, here, here's his story. He, uh, he was born, he really wasn't born a Jew. And you know that the Old Testament is primarily about the Jewish people. And so he was not born a Jew. He was born in another nation. In fact, his nation was sometimes at war with the Jewish people. He was born in a, a nation called the Hittites. And uh, in fact, you can Google them and find out about the Hittites all you want to. We know a lot about the Hittites. They're a very uh, influential group of people. He was a Hittite. In fact, his people were known to be the people who worshipped a thousand gods. And so he was born into a pagan nation. They worshipped a lot of different gods. But somewhere in his life, he had an encounter with the true God of Israel, the God, Jehovah God. He encountered God, like many of you have. Somewhere from a background, he came and he met God. And he realized this is the living God. This is the real God. And so he put aside all the false gods and he committed his life to follow the true and living God, Jehovah. Put aside all this family background, his heritage, his history. Now, I'm going to point something out to you here. We don't actually have Uriah's conversion story. It's not recorded for us in Scripture. He's basically trying to extrapolate this out from the fact that he's fighting for Israel and married to a Jewish woman. So historically, he's trying to connect dots, and I'm not going to quibble with it, but you've got to be careful when you do that. And follow the true and living God. Now, he was in Israel at kind of an interesting time. The, Israel had its first king, a guy named Saul, and this king had kind of whacked out a little bit. He, um, he started off really good, but that didn't last very long. Power went to his head, and before long, God had to tell him, he said, Saul, I'm going to take you off the throne and uh, I've got another guy I'm going to put on the throne. And this guy Saul, he knew who this guy was because all of a sudden he saw this young guy rising up and God's blessing was on his life. He went out and killed a giant, a guy by the name of David. You're familiar with him probably. And he could see this guy, this is the guy that's going to take my place. And my son won't be the next king because of him. And if he were wise, Saul would have said, God, this is your will. I messed up. Here, you gave me the throne. I give it back to you. I don't deserve to have it. I stepped down. David, come be king. If I can do anything for you, let me help out. 
That would have been wisdom. But this guy had kind of whacked out. Power had gone to his head. And so he said, I'm going to kill this young man so that he can't take my place and my son can become the next king. Well, that's why David ended up fleeing and living in the caves and living in the mountains. And this is the period of time when this fella, this Hittite guy, lived. And he was a warrior. In fact, the Hittites were known to be warriors. If you, if you check them out online, you'll find out that they even developed siege methods and strategies of attack that other nations around them copied. They were just, they were a fierce warring people. And he was a fierce warrior. And so he came to serve the God of Jehovah with his skills as a warrior. And he had a choice to make because over here is the king. This is the established government. But the king's whacked out. And he can see that God's hand had been taken off of the king, that, that the Lord was no longer blessing the king. But he could see God's blessing on this young man over here. But this guy is out living in caves. And so who do I give my allegiance to? And he chose to go where God was going instead of where God has been. Man, many people aren't wise enough to do that. We want to stick with our tradition. Well, God used to do it this way, and I want to... St- okay, now this, this little segment right in here, again... He's not preaching from any clear text. He's trying to extrapolate some things out, but then he's drawing conclusions from his extrapolations. That's a dangerous, dangerous way to interpret Scripture. And uh, notice he throws in the uh, you know this this little segment about here. Well, you know, I uh, God used to do it this way, and you know why can't he do it this way? And God's doing a new thing. Yeah, that's some dangerous thinking right there, and it's not biblical. We continue. Stick with the way God used to do it. No, he chose to go where God was going, and so he aligned himself with this survivalist group out in the mountains of Montana somewhere. You know. Well, not quite, but that's kind of what they were. They're living out in the caves somewhere, you know, and there's like 600 guys as David's whole army compared to thousands in the Israeli army. And the whole Israeli army is out looking for David, and he comes and signs up and says, I see God's hand on your life. I want to be a part of your army. I will fight for you, and I will defend you. And this guy, his name, Uriah. Uriah the Hittite, he's called. And he becomes a part of David's army. Not only was he a part of the army, but he was a fierce warrior. And he earned a place as what David called his 30 mighty men. He had 30 guys out of the whole 600 troops. He had 30 guys that they were like the toughest. They were like the most loyal. They were like his inner circle. Man, if the, if the battle got tough, those 30 guys would surround David because they were going to give their life for their king. Nobody was going to touch God's anointed man because they were going to give their life for him. And so he was one of those. He was one of those fierce 30 uh, in, inner circle, like the secret service right in the, in the Oval Office there. And so he was one of those guys. And um, everything was going good. It, while he, as a soldier then, he, uh, one of his other fellow warriors who was one of the 30 as well, a guy named Eliam, he, he saw Eliam's daughter one time. And Eliam, one of the other 30, one of the other fierce warriors that defended David, he saw this guy's daughter and said, wow, <laughs> hey, um, I would be interested in your daughter. And, and Eliam gave him his daughter to be married. And so he married this, this beautiful young woman. And they had a, we see from the scripture, they had a tender relationship. I mean, that's what I love about this guy. He was fierce, tough as nails, but tender toward his wife and, and, and had, had a loving relationship. And, you know, many guys in this time would have two or three wives. David had several wives. He contented himself with this one gorgeous, beautiful Jewish woman that he fell in love with. And so he's, he's got, uh, David comes to the throne by his help and by his leadership. They defended him and fought their way, and, and God gives David the throne. And so now things are kind of going good. 
He's on the side that's the established government. They have a time of peace in the country. Ah, there's still some enemies out there, but, you know, they're, they're out there. And uh, he's got a beautiful wife, and everything's just going really good for this guy. Uriah, everything's going good for him. Man, it, it's paying off to serve God until something happens. A friend, a dear friend, stabs him square in the back. I mean, just hangs him out to dry, screws him royalty, skewers him. I'm going to point something out to you here. I'm watching this on video, and I used to have I, I used to train and manage salespeople. He's not selling me this story. It's it's interesting. It's you can almost hear in his voice and by his posture and everything else doubt doubt in his own voice about the story that he's selling here. It's interesting that just. Something that, you know, as somebody who's to train and, and manage salespeople, something I've noticed here. We continue. A friend of his, not only a friend, but the very man that he was willing to give his life for, David, the king, stabs him square in the back. You go, how could that happen? This was a guy that he'd risked everything to join, to save, to protect, to help him ascend to the throne. And when he gets there, David turns around and stabs him right in the back. Well, how could that happen? Well, we see the beginning of it right here in this first verse, 2 Samuel 11. You can read the whole story, but I just want to read the first uh, verse there, and uh, then, we'll, then we'll talk about the story. 2 Samuel 11, here's where it says. Okay, just, the, okay, this is a, um, a stylistic critique at this point. If you're going to read me one verse, you might as well read the whole story. That way you're, you're grounding what you're saying in the Word of God and understand that the Word of God is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so my question is, why would you replace something powerful with, with something that, uh, that, you know, a summary of it may not... I'm just saying it may not have the same power. Verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Now, Joab was the, king, uh, the, the commander of David's army. He also happened to be David's nephew. And he says, Joab, uh, go to battle out there. Uh, it's the time when kings normally go to war, but they destroyed the Ammonites. They besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Really key little phrase there. It was the time when kings go to war... But David remained in Jerusalem. Hmm, interesting, isn't it? You see, in the last chapter, they had already battled the Ammonites. They were about ready to destroy them, and they had to remove themselves for a period and go over here and do some fight here. And then the bad weather set in. And so in wintertime, they would kind of regroup. It was hard to provision the troops. But in the spring, it was time to get back to the war. And the king would usually rally the troops, and he would go marching out. Come on, guys, let's go. He would lead the charge. And... But this is, this is an easy battle. Joab, you know, we know those Ammonites. We've already nearly defeated them. They're, they're weak. You just go out there. I'm going to take it easy. And he was ignoring the call of duty to listen instead to the call of relaxation and kind of taking it easy. You know, Paul compares the Christian life to a race. He says, in fact, in... Okay, this interpretation is a very interesting legalistic interpretation. Yes, but it, and it kind of misses the, the main point here. Listen carefully. This is, this is what happens when you confuse law and gospel. You're always looking for principles whereby you can see the moral shortcoming and you can figure out the thing that you're supposed to be doing. 
Oh, boy. 1 Corinthians 9. Uh, it says this. Don't you know that in a race, all of the runners run? Everybody runs in a race, but only one gets the prize. And Paul's comparing this to the Christian life here. He says, you run in such a way as to get the prize. In other words, this Christian life isn't just a mosey down the road of life, sniffing the flowers, but we're in a battle. And Paul says, it's going to take some energy. You've got to run this race with perseverance. You've got to run this race with diligence because there's an enemy out there that's going to try and trip you up. There's an enemy out there. The world is out there. The devil is out there. There's all kinds of enemies out there that are going to do everything they can to get you to quit this race and destroy you. And so he says, you run. But don't just run because only one runner in a race, only one gets the prize. You run like that guy who's going to get the prize. Don't just run to cross the finish line. Run to win. And then he goes on to say, verse 25, Paul, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training, takes discipline. See, here was David's problem. When he was in that wartime mentality, he lived a life of discipline. But now, ah, things are kind of calmed down. I can kind of take it easy. Everything's at peace in the kingdom, so I'm just going to lay back, take it easy. Yeah, I really ought to be out there leading the troops. I really ought to be doing this, but uh, you know, Joab can handle it. I'm just going to sit back and take it easy. And when, we, when we're where we don't belong, we find ourselves open to greater temptation. So here David is. He's in Jerusalem. That's not where he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be out leading the troops. But he's in Jerusalem. And one day he goes up on his rooftop. They had flat roofs, you know. They didn't have to worry about snow over there. And they had flat rooftops and kind of used those to, as extra rooms. And he's looking around over the city. And he looks down here and he sees this gorgeous woman down here. Uh, Bible says she's bathing. And... You know, we don't know exactly what she's doing, but whatever it was, she, she caught his eye. And uh, he should have just kind of gone back inside and said, mm, I got no business being up there. I should be out with the troops anyway, but he didn't. And he just kept kind of looking. And then he said, hey, who is this? Who is this? Oh, that's Eliam, you know, one of your 30 mighty men. That's his daughter. That's Uriah's wife. Your other 30 mighty men, you know, oh, yeah, Uriah, Eliam. Oh, yeah, know him well. We fought together in many battles. That's, wow. And he should have just psh, out of there, but he didn't. He kept looking. Kept looking. Pretty soon, being the king, he can say and do what he wants, right? He says, bring her to me. Well, the long and the short of the story, this woman, Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, ends up pregnant. Now David's got a problem. Man, he's been caught in his sin. What's he going to do? He could confess like the Bible tells us to do, right? Just confess and get it right. Okay, listen to that. Just confess and get it right. Now, I'm, I want to point something out to you. This is a sermon that's supposedly about Uriah the Hittite and the things we can learn about his good character. But see, even in his summary here, I mean, the bigger issue is, is that here we have David. This is a man at this point in his life who has written much of the book of Psalms, as you know, as, as we've come to know it. You know, this is a man who who was anointed king by Samuel. This is a man who God delivered from the hands of Saul on multiple occasions. And, I mean, we're talking these incredible things. He's defeated Goliath. And this is somebody who is described as having a, a literally a, a, heart at his, a heart after God's heart. And, you know, you could say that here we've got the story of somebody who, in, in our modern-day equivalent, would be a lifelong Christian. And somebody who's seen God do mighty things in his life. And now we've got a huge huge moral stumbling on his part. The big story is the story of his sin 
and ultimately of God's forgiveness. And by focusing on Uriah the Hittite, again, it's like focusing on popcorn, you know, when you go when you go to see a world premiere movie. You know, what would you think of that world premiere movie? Oh, the popcorn was great. You're missing the big storyline here, okay? And on top of it, because he's missing the big storyline, he's missing the gospel. Oh, man. Oh, this is tragic on many levels. Now, David's got a better idea. David's got a better idea. He says, you know what? I can call. I'm going to have Uriah come home and give me a report of the battle, and then I'll just send him home to his house, and I can figure out what he's going to do while he's at his house. He's been out in the fields for months now, uh, and that'll take care of the problem, and then he'll think it's his baby when the child is born. So he calls to Joab. He sends a message to Joab. Joab, send Uriah. Send Uriah with a report to me of how the battle's going. So Uriah's honored. Man, I'm going to bring a report to the king of how the battle's going. I got it all. I'm going to tell him how this went, how that went, how we... How we conquered him over there and how we're doing this and so he comes in david thank you for bringing me here's the report this is going on this is going on and while we were over here and we pulled back here but oh that's great that's great oh man glad here it's going good oh well hey thanks for coming um hey why don't you just take the day off and go home take the day off and go home yeah yeah go home and just kind of enjoy your family you know you can head back to the battle tomorrow thanks for the report that's all i want no just Glad things are going well. Goes to bed that night. Got that taken care of. Your eyes at home. Thumping up. Figure out what's going on. Tomorrow, they'll think that's his baby. He gets up in the morning, opens the door to go out and get the paper. Or whatever King's doing in the morning. I don't know, you know. Well, and there right on his doorstep is Uriah. Sleeping, curled up on the concrete. Or whatever they had. I don't know. You know, sleeping right there. What, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be at home. What are you doing here? And Uriah, listen to this. I love this guy, man. Uriah says, how can I go home and enjoy the comforts of my home and enjoy the comforts of my family and enjoy the comforts of my wife when my fellows in arms, when the other troops, in fact, when the ark of God are out sleeping in a field? I can't do that. How could I do that? That would have been a good question for David to ask himself too, wouldn't it have? What am I doing here in the castle when I've sent all my troops out there? Why am I not out there leading the troops? But he says, I can't do that. David's kind of panicking now. What am I going to do, you know? Ah, I got an idea. A little wine might solve this problem. So he says, well, you know, Uriah, that's good, good thinking. Good for you. Good guy. Hey, uh, stick around. We had a little party planned tonight. And, um, you know, you can go back to the field tomorrow. You can go to the troops tomorrow. But stick around tonight. So he, you know, he invites Uriah over there, sipping a little wine. And come on, Uriah, have some. Oh, I really should. Oh, come on, have some more. Come on. Oh, you know, we got to kill this bottle. Come on, Uriah, take it. So Uriah's... Little little tipsy, and uh, and David says, um, "Now go home, have a good night. Tomorrow you can head back out to the battle." Ah, thinks you know, pushes him out the door and kind of points him in the right direction toward home. And you know, it's just right down the hill. I mean, even if he fell, he could roll down there, right? So, um, points him in the right direction and uh, sends him home. Thinks it's all taken care of. Gets up in the morning, opens the door, big smile on his face. There's Uriah again. Right on the door. What are you doing here? I can't sleep at home when my, my, my buddies are out in the field. Man, that's just not right. What a loyal guy. And so David now has a major problem. And so he, he, he comes up with another plan. And this is an incredible plan. I mean, just, he, he says, Uriah, I've got a strategy for taking this city. It's something I got in prayer last night, I'm sure, you know. And I want you to take it to Joab. And you give it to Joab, the head of the army out there. And so he seals up this note, 
And, what, and he hands it to Uriah, and Uriah faithfully delivers it to Joab, not knowing that what he's delivering is his death warrant. What David is going to tell Joab to do, he says, Joab, I want you to attack the strongest part of the city. You don't attack the strongest part of the city. You attack the weakest part. Attack the strongest part. Move in close. You don't get that close, you know, where they can start lobbing rocks and pelting you with hot oil and all that stuff. You stay back a ways. Get in close. And then in the heat of the battle, I want you to tell everybody except Uriah to retreat. And you can imagine what that's going to, that's going to leave Uriah up there because he's a faithful man. He's a warrior. He is not going to turn back. He's out there fighting for God and for his king. He's not going to turn back. And so that's exactly what Joab does. He, they, they attack the... You know, he gets the troops together. He says, now look, we're going to attack this part of the city. And you know what was going on in these troops' minds. They're going, attack that part. But that's the strongest point. We haven't got a chance. We need to be attacking over here. But they didn't say anything because they were soldiers. They were faithful. They were... We're going to follow your commands. Attack there. And everybody else got the word in the heat of the battle. You retreat. Leave Uriah there. That's exactly what happened. And so they, following orders, attack this, this impenetrable portion of the city and, and are going at it. And in the heat of it, then they all retreat. Uriah is killed in battle. David gets the word that Uriah was killed in battle. His faithful friend was killed in battle. And he then takes Uriah's wife as his own. And, you know, this is, like, this is like an incredible story. And you could look at it and you could go, man, that Uriah, what a dope. What a loser he was. What did his being faithful get him except he got ripped off, he lost his wife, he lost his life. What a loser he is. David was looking out for number one. That's the hero in this story. You know, it depends on where your values are. Those aren't, those aren't God's values. You see, you could look at it and you could say that uh, that. that what did he get for his faithfulness? Well, I can tell you what Uriah got for his faithfulness. Proverbs tells us this. It says, a good name is to be more desired than great riches. Uriah, for one thing, got a good name. And you know, if you're just looking at this side of eternity, yeah, Uriah was kind of a loser. He got the short end of the stick on this. But if you're looking at the other... Okay, notice, um, law preaching always has to talk in wages or rewards. So here we've got this moral story of the great character of Uriah the Hittite, which, by the way, is, um, you know, it's, it's obvious that uh, Uriah had good character, much more so than David. But again, Uriah's the uh, supporting role and, you know, character in this story. And so what he's trying to admonish people to do is to learn from the story of Uriah the Hittite and what's in it for him. Well, see, that's the th that's law talk. What's in it for you? You want to know what's in it for you? Well, you, you can have a good name. See, if you do the, if you have a good character like Uriah, you too can have a good name like he does now. Because I mean, you know, see, he got his name written in the Bible. Hmm. Interesting. Side, if you're looking at eternity, Uriah got a good name in heaven. Not only did he get a good name here, we're speaking about him today, but he got a good name. He's even listed. In the New Testament as well as in the Old Testament. In fact, think about this. As a Gentile, born apart from the promises of God, born as a pagan worshiping idols, he is in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. How did he get in the lineage, in the line of the Lord Jesus Christ? Matthew 1.6, it says this. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Okay, I know I'm splitting hairs here, but 
Uriah really isn't in the line of Christ, but he's mentioned in the line of Christ. He's not Uriah is not a direct descendant of Jesus, but by vert yeah, okay. See, normally it would have said whose mother was Bathsheba, but God remembered Uriah. Isn't that awesome? God remembered this faithful man that th- Yes, God remembers Uriah. Remember, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So where does Uriah's character come from? It comes from the fact that he trusted in Christ before Christ came, looking forward to the promises of the Messiah yet to be fulfilled. Uriah is a man of faith. And as a result of that, he becomes a good tree that God creates and he bears good fruit. Because good trees bear good fruit. That's why we see this character. It is an example of and definitely speaks to his faith. Thousands of years earlier, had given his life and was a loyal, faithful friend to David, even though David stabbed him in the back. David, uh, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So he's even mentioned in the lineage of David, or of Jesus. Now, as good as all of that is, here's the greatest thing. If he hasn't already heard it, one day Uriah is going to hear this from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, you've got to listen carefully to this. Listen to what Uriah is going to hear and what's the basis for it. Listen carefully. He's going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Man, I saw what you, it was awesome what you did there, Uriah. You were faithful. You held true. You were loyal. Even when you knew it was a stupid command. Even when you knew something had to be up because this wasn't the way to do it. Okay, everybody who hears from the Lord, well done now, good and faithful servant. Servant That comes through Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So it is not his obedience that makes God say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. It's the fact that by faith, he's covered with the blood of Christ. See, that's the problem. When you mix law and gospel, you somehow make it so that now God's going to stand up and take notice of your righteousness. Yet our righteousness is as filthy rags. It's Christ's righteousness by virtue of the fact that we've been declared righteous and been given Christ's righteousness, the righteousness of God that is by faith, that God says, well done. Because then even our feeble good works are pleasing to God. But without faith, they are not. But you were faithful and you were true because of me. You were serving me. Well done. Enter into the joy of your salvation. And I mean, there's no way you can put a value on that reward. Yeah, I was disappointed with my servant David in that situation. But Uriah, you did good. Come on in. Oh, oh man. Disappointed? With, uh, see, now, this is where it gets a little discouraging. Pastor Rick here is missing the big story. He's, you know, the big story is David's adultery and murder. And, you know, and what... I mean, seriously, and God's forgiveness. But we're going to have to get to that in a minute. I want you to hear a little bit more. There's a blessing for Uriah. And and here's kind of the summation of the whole thing. You know, when you do right, um, you know, oftentimes when we do right, good things happen. You do right and and good things happen. Ouch. Oh, man. No, it doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes you do right and, and terrible things happen. 
it's it it oh man our good works do not determine whether or not good things happen to us in our life that makes it so that god then becomes beholden to us but he's he's going to clear that clean this up a little bit hang on you do right and there's blessing that falls but you know what if you're always looking for payday to be right here in this life you're going to be disappointed a lot because a lot of times you're going to do the right thing and you're going to lose your job over it you're going to do the right thing and you're going to lose the promotion. You're going to do the right thing and you're going to lose a friendship. You're going to do the right thing and you're going to look like the idiot. You're going to look like just what a stupid dope he is. He did the right thing when he knew doing the right thing was going to cause him to lose this, this, and this. But the point is, for whose reward and whose approval are you living? If you're living for that approval of eternity, if you're look, living for that reward of eternity, then you do what's right. Why? Because it's right to do right, regardless of the consequences. Okay, I don't do good works because I'm uh, trying to earn the reward or approval of heaven. Even my best good works are still not done with pure motives and are tainted with sin. But the good works I do because I am a new creation in Christ... I am in him. I can't help but do good works. I don't do them to earn rewards or to earn the approval of God or anything like that. Oh, and I think that's exactly what Scripture teaches, too. And that's what Uriah did. He was a man who did what was right. He got stabbed in the back because of it. He lost his life. He lost his family because of it. But he did not lose his eternal reward. And here's... This will... And see, that's confusing because it makes it sound like he's the one who earned his eternal reward. Uriah didn't earn his salvation. Nobody, nobody earns their salvation. Everybody who is a direct descendant of Adam from the time of Adam and Eve until the last person takes his last breath on the day of judgment, anybody who's saved is saved by the work of Christ completely. No mixing of works and grace, period. It is all salvation by grace through faith apart from works, lest any man should boast. Salvation and faith are a gift from God. Uriah, a man of faith, was given that gift by God. He did not earn his salvation through his good character and his good works or anything like that. His good character instead are the fruits of his faith. Big difference from what we're hearing from Pastor Mom here. Not come as a surprise to you if you've been walking with the Lord for a period of time. But if you're living your life to please God, you are going to get burned sometimes. Not by the Lord, but definitely by His people. <gasps> surprise. You're going to get burned. You're going to have people do things to you. Who was it that stabbed Uriah in the back? One of the heroes of the faith. When you list the heroes of the faith of the Old Testament, I mean, it's like David and Moses and Elijah. David's right up there. Yet he screwed Uriah, just stabbed him right in the back. You see, even good people do really, really rotten things. Uh, okay. <clears throat> uh, who's a good person? <clears throat> if good people do rotten things, then how are you defining somebody who's good? I mean, if you do really, really rotten things, are you really good? We can, in all honesty, say David was not a good person. 
unless, of course, you want to redefine the, the, the definition of a good person to include murdering adulterers. The one thing we can say definitively about David is that he was not a good person. He was a wretched sinner who committed reprehensible and egregious sins. And I hope that doesn't come as a surprise to you. In fact, it says this in um, 2 Timothy, those who decide to please Christ Jesus by living godly lives will suffer at the hands of those who hate him. But we also suffer at the hands who love him. So here's, here's kind of, let's wrap the whole thing up. This is the take home for today. This is the doggy bag, okay? Take- okay, this, is, this will be the doggy bag. And from here, I'm going to segue into the bigger story. I think it's important if, you know, that we see the gospel in this story because at this point, we've just gotten a character sketch of Uriah and told we need to do the right thing no matter what the right thing is and regardless of the cost. And why? So that I can have a good name. I don't know. I mean, how important is that? We continue. Let's get the doggy bag. Get this home with you. Chew on this later. Here's the doggy bag for the day. The big idea for today is this. If you're serving the Lord, you're going to get burned. You're going to get hurt. Even good people, even people that you look up to as godly, are sometimes going to disappoint you, sometimes going to stab you in the back. You expect it from the unbelievers. And murder you? Just, you know, I've got to ask. Hang on. But, you know, even your brothers and sisters in the family of God, sometimes you're going to find out that sheep have fangs. They bite you on the rear now and then, you know. And you, where did that come from, you know? And, and that, that may surprise you. But you cannot let it change who you are. You cannot let it begin to build bitterness in you. You cannot put up walls around you. You can't. Okay, notice so far, all law, all law in the sermon. And it, it, this is all what you got to do, 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 what you got to do. I, we're going to dig out the, the gospel here in the story of David and Bathsheba here in just a second. Hold tight. Not do that because the same walls that keep them out lock you in. And if you desire to please God with your life, there will be times you will get burned. Uriah did. Jesus did. And it will happen to you too. But we have got to respond the same way the Lord Jesus did. When he was cursed, when he was accused, when he was spit upon, when he was beaten, it says he didn't revile back, but he committed it to God. Now, again, this is an observation as I'm watching this. I don't, if you just listen to his voice, if you could see his posture, if you could see his facial expressions, I kid you not, it's as if he doesn't believe the thing he's selling. He doesn't have any confidence in it. And I'll tell you why I think that is, okay? When you preach all law and no gospel... Indicatives, uh, imperatives without indicatives. When you preach um, all law without proclaiming what Christ has done and without giving the forgiveness of sins and basically telling people, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and resolve to do the right thing so that when the time comes of your testing, you're going to do the right thing no matter what the cost is and no matter what the circumstances are and whether or not how much you lose or whether or not you 
um, all of that stuff, that is, um, for lack of a better way of putting it, it's, it's not what Christianity teaches. It's a misunderstanding of law and gospel, and you can't sell it to people because you know from your own life you don't even do this perfectly. So when you're an all-law, no-gospel preacher, or you don't understand how the gospel correctly fits into theology and its proper role, what ends up happening is is that you stand up before a group of people and you know you're a hypocrite. You know the sins that you struggle with. You know the very things that you that you're telling other people to do. You're not doing them. As a result of it, you lose confidence in in the message that you're preaching because you know you're not pulling it off. And that creates a crisis of conscience. It creates a crisis of confidence. I hear that in Pastor Mom's voice. I don't hear confidence in the message he's preaching because he's it's obvious he's struggling with his own sin and his own lack of not doing this himself yet he feels like he has to get up and tell everybody that they need to be doing these things because you got to you see what i'm saying so he hasn't figured out where the gospel fits in his theology he doesn't know how to handle it correctly. As a result of it, he's defaulting to the law, but the ba- the passages, the, the, the principles and the law he's preaching, he knows he's not living up to it. That's why you're not hearing a lot of confidence here. Just taking a shot at it. We, we continue. He committed it to God. And in our lives, when you are attacked, when you are falsely charged, when you are bitten by somebody that you, you'll find it's the people that you've poured more of your life into that will turn around and stick you in the back. I mean, this was a guy that he had helped him ascend to the throne, stuck him in the back. And so you'll find many times it's those kind of people, but you cannot allow that to change your spirit. You've got to keep a sweet spirit. You've got to keep a soft heart. You may be abused time and time again, but you cannot let it come in and pollute you. The Bible says, Jesus said that out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. And if you allow bitterness, anger, resentment, greed, envy, jealousy, if you allow that all that to come into your heart, what you have just done is polluted the headwaters. And the only thing that will come out of your life is polluted water. You want to be a person that has life-giving springs coming from your heart, ministering to others. Okay, <clears throat> you want to be a person who has life-giving springs. See, the thing is, is that Jesus is the one who is the life-giving water. Okay, we're going to have to switch gears here and actually get back, get to the gospel in the story so that I can point this out to you. The story of Uriah the Hittite and his character is a subplot to the bigger plot. The bigger plot is David and Bathsheba's adultery and then David's murder to cover it up. Okay, he's already given us a pretty decent outline of uh, of the story. However, I'm going to go ahead and read to you uh, the story in context so that you can hear it for yourself from God's word the way it's, it really needs to be heard. We read, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. 
It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Okay? This is huge. This is huge. This is a man who is described as a man after God's own heart, the king of Israel, the chosen king of Israel, a direct descendant of Jesus, the Messiah. In fact, it is said that that Jesus sits on the throne of David forever. And what has David done? He has committed adultery. This is this is a, a sin deserving of death and eternal punishment. This is not to be made. You, know, you can't go by today's standards. Ah, you know, who cares? Everyone commits adultery. No big deal. He had six, seven wives anyway. What's well, another one anyway? No, 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 no. Adultery. Big capital scarlet letter A. Adultery. <coughs> we continue. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a, uh, a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today and also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And then David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. Now in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. This is awful. Literally, Uriah is going to be carrying the orders to have him murdered. I mean, there's despicable acts, and then there's just outright holy guacamole reprehensible. This is These are the actions being committed by a man who's, quote, after God's own heart, in a heartless, ruthless unbelievably disgusting way the king of Israel is having this man who has done him no harm carry unbeknownst to him the very orders to have him murdered 
I mean, this is the opposite of poetic justice. This is just horrible. And this supposedly from a man who is after God's own heart. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people. They fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king, king's anger arises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot you from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of uh, Jerabasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? And then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Adultery and now premeditated murder. And this man carried his own murder orders to the man who murdered him. Wow. So then the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead. And she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other very poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up and with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. 
Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. This story, in a very real way, is all of our stories. Every single one of us, whether you have walked with the Lord a day or 80 or 90 years, every single one of us has despised the word of the Lord and have sinned against him. Nathan the prophet could show up to your house and say to you, you're the man, you're the woman, and lay bare before you the sins that you commit in secret. Many of you hearing my voice today are guilty of the very same sin that David has committed, an act of an adultery. And if you think that you are off the hook because you haven't actually done the deed with somebody, you're not. Because Christ Jesus our Lord says that if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have already committed adultery with her. Every single one of us has despised the word of the Lord. And here, not only is David confronted with his sin, but he's also given the good news of the gospel. And he hears from the, from the mouth of Nathan the prophet, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And this story forms the backdrop for one of the most amazing gospel psalms that we have. That would be Psalm 51. This is a psalm that was written after Nathan the prophet went to David and his adultery with Bathsheba. Listen to these words, listen to this confession, and listen to this gospel. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, and according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, and you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight." 
so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret place. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Hear, let me hear joy and gladness, and let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with your willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my mouth, and my, my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. You see, this is a story of a hero of the faith, if you would. The words that Pastor Rick Malm used. Who gave in to temptation. Who committed egregious sins. And it's a story not of him pulling himself up by his bootstraps, not him confessing his sin, instead him being caught red-handed. For the things you do in secret are not secret to God. He knows. And he is confronted with his sin, and he repents. He confesses his sin, and he receives from God absolution, the good news that his great God and Savior has blotted out his sin and made him white, taken away his blood guiltness. And this taking away of blood guiltness is not done through the sacrifice of bulls, but was done by God himself, come to earth in human flesh to die on the cross for our sins. It was through the blood of Christ that we are made right with God. It is through the blood of Christ that our transgressions are blotted out. It is through the blood of Christ that our blood guiltness is taken away because it was atoned for, it was propitiated. Christ suffered in our place on the cross the death that we deserve for all of our sins. And so the sad thing about this sermon, by focusing on Uriah the Hittite, 
by make, making it a moralizing sermon and confusing law and gospel, Pastor Malm has missed an amazing ability to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins to the people in his congregations, in his congregation, the ones who are all guilty of sin before God, the ones who may have been walking with the Lord for years and years and years and yet stumbled into something terrible and given in to temptation and allowed Satan to have the upper hand. And rather than giving them Christ, the forgiveness of sins, and a merciful and loving God, instead he's preaching God in such a way that God's basically sitting there going, here's a program I expect you to follow and and if you get it right, then I'll give you rewards and uh, might even, you know, give you something really huge, like, you know, a good name, you know, something like that. And yet, I can hear it in Pastor Mom's voice. I can see it in his eyes. I can see it in his posture. He's having a difficult time selling this message because he knows of his sin. And he knows in a very real way He's not pulling it off. He's not selling it. And if I could see Pastor Mom face to face, there's only one thing I would want to tell him. Christ died for his sins. All this striving to please God and the wondering as to whether or not that he's pulling it off, he need not wonder any longer. Because the good news of the gospel says to him and it says to me and it says to you that we are made pleasing to God because God himself through the blood of Christ has washed us whiter than snow. There is no greater message that we have to proclaim than the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross. The Christian message is not one of try harder, strive harder, try to get those rewards, try to earn God's favor. Because each and every one of us knows that we don't. Striving as hard as we can, we seem to get nowhere. It's like running on a rat wheel. There is no comfort. There is no peace. There's only nagging doubts, fear, and hypocrisy. But when you preach the law lawfully to condemn sinners of their sin, show them their need for a savior, it really hurts them. Guarantee it does. They may not like you for it. But that's not the end of it. You preach the law to condemn sinners so that God can give them repentance and the forgiveness of sins and proclaim to them Salvation for free. Completely for free. Free to us, but it costs God dearly because he paid for our salvation with the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what's missing. When you miss, mix, mix up law and gospel, that's what you end up doing. Let's hear more Pastor Mom. You want to have something to give that brings life and health and encouragement. And the only way to do that is to keep your heart pure. Keep it soft before the Lord. Jesus said, remain childlike. You know, you can, you can abuse a child and you can spank a child and they'll come back an hour later. You know, and they've just forgotten all about it. 
You know, and, and we've got to have that childlike softness in our heart. Close with a little story. A guy we know, um, a fellow by the name of Mark Rutland, um, he was uh, telling tell us one time about how he was preaching at a church, and he did a lot of traveling ministry. And that morning, uh, there were rumors going around about a world-known evangelist that had fallen into immorality. And so before the service started, he heard the rumors and heard people talking. And he got up and he, he spoke that morning. He said, you know, first of all, I just need to let you know that there are rumors going around about this particular person. You need to know those are not true. Do not repeat those rumors. I know this man. I have met this man. He is a man of integrity and he would not do that. And so stop those rumors right here. You know what's really sad here is, is that even the story he's ending on, the story of this well-known evangelist who fell into, uh, well, it sounds like a sexual sin, the parallels with David are there, not the parallels with Uriah. Even the story he's closing with points us to David, and the forgiveness of sins is what we need to hear from this. Uh. On the way home from church that day, he heard on the radio that this man had publicly confessed that all of it was true. So he's, of course, thinking, what an idiot I am. What an idiot. I, you know, I just shot my credibility in the head, you know, and he's thinking, he says to his wife out loud, he goes, I wonder what people are thinking about me. What an idiot I am now. And she turned to him and she says, Mark, I imagine that most people are thinking, I wish I had a friend like Mark Rutland. Somebody who believes the best of you. Somebody who, even when you have screwed up royally, they're going to say, you know, I don't believe this of him. And if he did do it, he's a better person than this. And I believe better of him than this. You know, I want to be a friend like that. I want to have friends like that. But I want to be a friend like that. A friend who, you know, even when you screw up, they're going to stand by you and say, you know, let's get up out of this pit. Let me help you out of it. You messed up, but you're a better person than this. You see, the Christian message when you mess up is not that you're a better person than this. That's that's like a, a denial. It's a de- no. It, the reason why people mess up is not because they're better people than that, because that's exactly what we do by nature. We're all sinners. The reason why we sin is because we are sinners. I want to be the kind of friend to people that when they screw up, I tell them. Of the great love of Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross to save sinners. Jesus didn't come for the well. He came for the sick. And I am sick with sin. And so are you. And so our good news is not to people that, well, you're better than that. No, it's not that you're better than that. No, you did this because you're a sinner. And I've got good news. Our God died on the cross to save sinners and is offering full and complete pardon to sinners. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness and trust this good news. God's got better things for you. And that we have got to keep the attitude that God has about us. And that is this. They are saints. We are saints under construction. Uh, Still in the making. Oh, man convoluted no we're saints because we're declared righteous by christ not under construction i am declared to be a saint not because of anything i'm done and i'm not even under construction (sighs) god's not finished with us yet but we are saints we are holy we are set apart 
unto the purposes of God. But we're still under construction. And so when that saint bites you in the rear, when that saint sticks you in the back, when that saint says something ugly about you, when that saint says something that's not true and starts or spreads a rumor, they're still under construction. But so am I and so are you. So we need to have grace toward one another. Just the same kind of grace that God has had toward us. A great, you know, and see, his definition of grace makes it sound like, you know, grace is saying, oh, that's okay. You're a better person than that. <laughs> no. Grace is the undeserved merit of God. Him declaring us to be righteous uh, when we deserve to hear from him go to hell. All because of what Christ did. Now, you're going to hear a little bit of gospel here at the end. He, he knows it. He just doesn't know how to work it in. ...that overwhelms all of the offense, a grace that goes over all of the mistakes and the foibles and the goof-ups and all the things that we do wrong, a grace that's greater than our own sin and weaknesses. Because of the blood of Christ. It's not that it covers it up. It's that it's, it's propitiated. It's cast out. It's, it's gone. Aren't you glad God has that kind of grace toward us? That he reached out when we didn't deserve it, laid hold of us and says, you are mine. See, now this is a good little gospel nugget right here. The thing is, and see, that's the confusion of law and gospel is not the complete absence of gospel. It's not knowing where the proper use of the law ends and begins and where the gospel really applies. Ugh. And you're going to mess up and you're going to fail and you're going to fall, but you are mine. No, it's not you're going to mess up, you're going to fail, but you are mine. You're, it's, you've messed up, you've failed. I have died and forgiven. You see the difference? It's big and it's important. And you're a saint under construction. Uh. Father, we just thank you for... Um... All right, so there's my... Um, there's my uh, review of the uh, Uriah the Hittite sermon. And again, it, it definitely represents a confusion of law and gospel. Purpose of the law. The law cannot save us. We don't please God through our law keeping. We are, instead, we are pleasing to God because of our trust and faith in Christ and the good news of the message of the forgiveness of sins won by him on the cross. And because we are made new in Christ... We are a new creation, and we do good works because that's part of our new nature. And when people who are Christians stumble and fall, and they do, they need to hear again the refreshing and outrageously good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ died even for those sins, that even Christians, God is saving them too. That's what we need to hear. <clears throat> Not little pithy moral imperatives devoid of the cross. In fact, even our sanctification comes about and through the cross. Oh, man. Like I said, if I could tell Pastor Malm one thing, I would tell him of the love of Jesus Christ and that even though he is a pastor and even though 
He's been a Christian for many, 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 many years, and he's been striving and trying so hard. Strive no more. You are made righteous because of Christ. Repent and believe the good news. And then go and serve and love your neighbor as one who has been set free from sin. Mm. Pastor Mom, Christ died for you. I know you need to hear it. And you need to trust it. You will stand before God someday and hear him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, because you are covered by the blood of Christ. You have been made righteous through what Christ has done. Anyway. All right, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means uh, your financial support is vital for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. If you would like to partner with us, and, and believe me when I tell you, you're not part. If you're, you, the reason you partner with us is because you want to help support this ministry, not only so that you can continue hearing it, but that others can, can continue hearing it. And this is not about you earning rewards. This is not about somehow you getting brownie points in heaven. This is surely out of love and service for your neighbor. You can support Fighting for the Faith a couple of ways. You can visit our website, uh, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. Or you might choose to do it the traditional way. You can make your gift check payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, tomorrow is my 21st wedding anniversary. It's going to be an interesting day tomorrow. Anyway, uh, we'll have to save that. More on that tomorrow, I guess. <laughs> anyway, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's program, you can do so at uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or look me up on Facebook. My name is Chris Rosebro or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Christ's vicarious death on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. Yeah, you. Amen. <laughs>